Top of the inning to you. Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love baseball and if you love Ireland, stay tuned for a discussion of all things Irish baseball. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. On the show today, Mike Cronin will be returning to talk about the Irish role in baseball and the traditional Irish sports of the GAA. Mike is the academic director for Boston College, Ireland, and he was on episode 31 of the Irish Baseball Podcast to talk about the surprisingly American roots of most of the St. Patrick's Day traditions many in the U.S. associate with the Emerald Isle. Right now, let's continue that conversation by talking about the Irish influence in the early days of baseball in the United States. I mean, my background, Rick, is larger. I've kind of worked much more on kind of sports played within Ireland. Um, I have an awareness of kind of the Irish diaspora relationship with sports in the U.S. And I do think, again, it's part of a story we just touched on in a way about that kind of notion of a huge population arriving in America. And I think, there's, you know, timing and history is everything. If you start thinking through when do the Irish start crashing into America in huge numbers, it's the second half of the 19th century. When is modern sport, as we understand it in terms of codified, organized, professionalizing, spectator sport, when's that emerging? It's the second half of the 19th century. So suddenly you have an opportunity with professional baseball, particularly because it's the first one. Football excludes the Irish, because football early on is it's in the elite colleges, and the Irish are not in the elite colleges. So it's baseball as a professional game, as an urban game, which is familiar to the Irish very quickly after they arrive, definitely within one generation. It's a game they're playing, and it's a game you can earn a living from. And if you've just got off a, literally got off a boat... If you're good enough and you can play a game like baseball and earn a living, it's a damn sight better than working on a building site. So you can look at the early years of kind of baseball. You can look at the early years of professional basketball where the Irish and other immigrant groups have a much kind of higher ratio of number of players than they do, you know, three, four generations on. Um, and again, you get, you, get, you get into stereotypes. If you look at kind of the early kind of reporting of baseball games and those either Irish-born or Irish heritage players that are playing in the late 19th century, they're the ones who are sort of, oh, the Irish, you know, the outfielders are violent, they're brawling with the fans, they're almost standing on the outfield drinking. You know, true or not, it just plays for these great stereotypes of what the Irish were, because, again, base basketball starts off as a very kind of working-class sport. It's cheap to attend. Who's going to be in the crowd? Well, it's the Irish in part. So it's at that, I'd say really up until the First World War, that's the kind of key point where baseball has huge kind of Irish roots. It dissipates as baseball changes. It dissipates as uh, the Irish themselves become more middle class. They move out to the suburbs. But yeah, the role of the Irish in baseball is, is very significant. So now let's talk about some of those sports in Ireland that originate from Ireland. Obviously, Gaelic football, hurling, and some of these sports, as somebody who researches these sports, who knows the histories and the backgrounds of these sports, if you're talking to somebody in the United States who maybe has Irish background, what should they know about them, not just the sports themselves, but how they relate to Irish history? Okay, I think a really important part about Gaelic games, 
So we're talking about the game of hurling, which is a stick and ball game, uh, and football, which is a mix between, I don't know, in simplest levels, a throwing game like basketball, a handling game like basketball, and a kicking game like soccer. They both have very specific foundation dates. They're kind of invented, as it were, inverted commas, in 1884. And they're invented by a man called Michael Cusack, who is a school teacher, a sports fanatic. He's been a weight-throwing champion. He's tried rugby. He's tried football. He's tried hockey. He's done everything. Sports mad. But because he's an Irish nationalist, believes that Ireland should not be part of Britain, he has a problem with the sporting culture as it existed by the 1880s. And he said, look, I've got all these Irish men and women, largely men, running around playing English or British games. They're not playing Irish games. They're not playing what he referred to as manly, aggressive Irish games. And he said the problem is if you're sitting there playing these kind of English games, which he sees as corrupt, he sees them as too involved in betting and money and drink, these negative things. He said the problem with that, if you culturally play English games, you may as well just be English. You may as well give up with the idea of being an independent nation. If you truly want to be Irish, you've got to culturally do Irish things. So he basically went back into the record books and dug up hurling this ancient game that's been played for 2,000 years. Football, a game, uh, more of a kind of mob football, more of a kind of, you know, 100 aside kind of rough and tumble game of football. Uh, and he, he codified them. He literally wrote the rules printed them in the newspapers, and spread the word. And from 1885, the games of the Gaelic Athletic Association or the GAA were born. You can't separate out the links of the games with the force of Irish nationalism. So one of the first rules that's passed by the GAA is a ban on its members playing any other sport. If you played or watched soccer, hockey, cricket, rugby, the foreign games or English games, you would be banned from membership of the Gaelic Athletic Association. Now, that's radical. That would be like, you know, Major League Baseball saying anybody who watches NFL will be thrown out. You know, in a modern world, we watch all kinds of sports. But back in the 19th century, they were hardcore. Um, so things like that made people sort of Irish people who believed in the Irish nation say, you know what, I'm not going to play these English games anymore. So the Gaelic Athletic Association had direct roots in a kind of revolt against Britishness. Why they're important now, I mean, apart from um, the NCAA in the US, it's the GAA is probably the last great amateur sports organization. You know, it's home stadium, Croke Park in North Dublin, uh, takes a crowd of 83,500. It's the fourth biggest stadium in the whole of the European Union. It would be, you know, the biggest TV event every year, and yet it doesn't pay its players. Players take no salary. Um, even though they, they train and they do nutrition and everything else like professional, they do not get salaried, which means that the organization probably makes each year around 80 million euro and recycles about 65 million of that back into clubs around the country. So the idea the profit of the sport is not given to the players, it's given back to the grassroots. So Gaelic Games remain the single biggest sport in Ireland, culturally community-wise, the most important, 800,000 members, 2,000 clubs across the country and around the world. So hugely significant. Again, I mean, not, not dissimilar. I mean, if you think about 
not saying this is true, but if you think about the kind of the origins of baseball, somewhere in the history of baseball is the idea it's an adaptation of is it rounders, is it cricket? And that's murky. We don't, you know, we kind of know bits and pieces. But there's also a, a story that develops. Why do the Americans take to baseball and football? Part of the answer is always given, oh, it's a rejection of Britishness. It's a rejection of the old imperial overlord. Not necessarily true, but it's there in a way of Americans thinking themselves as different. And that's kind of actually in practice what her works in Ireland. It's a deliberate way of rejecting British sporting culture. Much like the creation of these sports or the codifying of the rules of these GAA sports, not only was it nationalist in creating the rules of the sports, but a lot of the people who worked towards nationalist ends were sort of trained by working in the GAA or experiencing the GAA. It was sort of a way to be around people who had the same goals as you and I would say that probably the GAA played a bigger part in the independence of Ireland than a lot of people realize. Rick you're absolutely right I mean I think you think about sports clubs particularly you know at that in that period of time sports clubs are places largely for men young men come together now if you want to start a revolution or fight a war you need young men the young man's business so what you see is that GAA clubs in the run-up to um, the Irish Revolution, I suppose, in a way, against the British, you see the GAA clubs as a place where young men are radicalised. They're playing their sport, they're having a great social time, they're having their pints and their dances and all the normal things, but also because it's an Irish space, it's where they're thinking about what it means to be Irish. And that's when the kind of, you know, the political movements are coming in and talking to them, and what you see very quickly is that once you get to the kind of pinch point of time where the Irish will begin organising and begin their fight against the British, who are some of the first people to start actually drilling with guns, or drilling with broomsticks? It's GAA clubs. And there is a huge correlation, you're absolutely right, between membership of the GAA and revolutionary activity. Not, not all of them, but it's significant that this is where a radical strand of Irish life is happening. This is where young men are who are pro propagating these ideas, who are spreading these ideas. Um, so, yeah, you can't say, I mean, it's a whole, there's a whole line about, you know, uh, the GA kind of almost, you know, didn't, they didn't start the revolution. But if you want to look at the revolution at play, that's what the GA were doing. That there is this kind of idea, it's where the right kind of people were mixing. So you, you're right, you can't separate out the two. Uh, and I think it's interesting. I mean, I think it's, you can take it as a much larger point of view than that. I mean, I think sports clubs generally, given their kind of, as it were, you know, normal target audience, young, youngish men and women, uh, you know, in the 20th century, there's a huge history of sports clubs going off to war, sports clubs fighting in national revolutions and so on. Um, you know, if you're going to fight a war, you need young, fit people. Where do you find young, fit people? Sports clubs. Uh, and Ireland, in that sense, it's a, it's, a, it's a big example, but it's not an extreme example. I can't think of another country where sports play as big a part in the history of that country than with Ireland. Even in the United States, where maybe 
sports do play a really big part in the history of the United States. It doesn't get talked about as much in our history classes, but you can't tell the history of Ireland without talking about the GAA. I think, no, you're right. I mean, the thing is the GAA is important, not simply because of the role it plays in, first of all, during its foundation, the idea it's resisting British culture. You know, that's a big statement. The fact that the men of the GA then are present in the actual fighting of the revolution. That's different. I think it's true that when you get to the state being founded in the 1920s, the state acknowledges that role that the GA has played. The GA as an amateur organization survives on government grants, government gifts, whereas soccer and rugby have got to try and make their own way. Also, I think once you get to the conflict in the north of Ireland, from the 1960s onwards, a conflict which is essentially about Catholic v. Protestants, it's an identity struggle, the GAA becomes kind of important again because the GAA is a Catholic organisation. So again, if you're a young Catholic in the North, you're going off to the GAA club, you're, you're carrying your hurl on your back to go off and play. That's symbolically very, that's signifying you as Catholic both as a point of pride, but also signifying you to the enemy. So I think you can't, you know, you have to acknowledge the GEA functions and works because it's a good sport, it's good fun, and it's great to watch. But you can't then separate it out from its political activism, lowercase, you know, small p, across the whole of the 20th century. And I think you're right, You, you the Irish story of sport and politics, sport and history is, different because I think you as your your point you're making is true that you know American sports are hugely significant in the social and cultural history of the US but apart from a few moments uh, you know Jesse Owens in 1936 Carlos and Smith in 1968 you know Kaepernick into the 21st century you look at American sport and politics around a few very specific examples symbolizing very specific themes and moments. Whereas I think in Ireland, you'd actually, you would teach a class on sport and politics entirely within the confines of Ireland because as a national body, it's had such a huge impact. So you're right, there, there is a distinction to be made. And then when we were talking about St. Patrick's Day earlier and how it really did originate the way we know it today in the United States and then sort of head back over to Ireland to change the way it was celebrated in Ireland. GAA has had the opposite effect where there is now the US GAA. So there are clubs throughout the United States who are trying to hold on to their culture and propagate their culture by taking part in these games that aren't American, that are very much back to the island of Ireland. And it's just another one of those connections between the two countries. Yeah, I think, I mean, the GAA as, a, as an organization has always been very active amongst its diaspora, particularly in the U.S., um, that you have, you know, Gaelic grounds in New York, you'd have Canton just outside Boston, where you have these huge facilities for the playing um, of Gaelic games. You would have a network of clubs. It's ebbs and, it's ebbed and flowed, given the kind of health and numbers of the Irish diaspora population living in the US. I think where it's significant now is that 
GA clubs have worked very hard because the numbers of American people, sorry, the number of Irish people entering America has shrunk dramatically in the last 20, 30 years with the change of immigration policy. Therefore, you don't have the um, constant renewal of an Irish population. You have a multi-generational, I'm first generation, second generation, third generation, whatever it may be. I think where the GA has been hugely successful across the US is that it's worked very hard to make sure that people of a second, third, fourth generation are still coming to the club, are still using the GEA setting or the cultural setting as a way of connecting with their Irishness. Um, but they've also done a lot of work on also trying to attract just, you know, local kids who live in the area, come and try something different. It's a fun sport. But the GEA can never survive in a country like the US where there is a very, very competitive sporting market just by saying, oh, we're the Irish game because the number of Irish people is reducing year on year. You've got to be doing something different which you're trying to attract other people in. It's fun. It's community-based. You know, that, again, global recognition of Irishness. But, you know, that'll be the test of, test of time in a way is will the GEA survive in its American setting? Because I'm actually a member of the club where I live and I play hurling and we don't really have a lot of success getting Gaelic football games together, but we at least practice it. But people in the U.S. seem to be way more interested in hurling, at least in the areas that aren't like Boston and New York, where they have a really, really big GAA contingent. But we'll play against teams, and I'm sure, like you said, so many people do have that Irish background. But there are a lot of players on a lot of the clubs that we'll face who certainly don't look Irish, you know? It has definitely expanded past the Irish immigrants who come over here and want to continue playing their game. There are Irish Americans who get involved in it and people who don't seemingly have an Irish background who are taking part in these games because maybe they played lacrosse and they see some similarities with hurling or they've played some of these other games and it gives them a chance to keep competing in sports. You know, sometimes learning a new sport can really be a big challenge for somebody and just that challenge and then being part of a social group, because like you said, it is a club. So you're not just showing up, playing and then going home you're going to the pub afterwards you're actually interacting with a group of people and i think that's one thing that these sports have that a lot of other sports don't have and it could be an advantage to the usgaa yeah and i think you're right the idea of the club is really important that depending on a lot of it depends on where the club is but i mean in the same way that the gaa has been very good at attracting people with no irish links no irish heritage Irish dancing's done the same thing. And quite often it's the local GA club or the GA facilities is where the Irish dancing classes are going on. So therefore, what happens when a parent drops off the daughter or the son to the Irish dancing? Oh, there's all these middle-aged guys running around with sticks outside. What's that about? Oh, it's hurling. And as you say, I think the problem is if you grow up or your kind of sport you've excelled at at school, high school through college, is a lacrosse, a a football, you know, baseball, whatever it may be. You've got an expectation that you're going to keep playing at some kind of high level, even as you age. 
And does that exist? Does that exist in a league format? Is it just pickup games? And I think the attraction of something like hurling is that increasingly in the US, you know, yes, okay, in the, in the elite clubs of New York, etc. This is serious. But I think across much of the US, this is now, as you point you just made, it's a club, it's a few pints, it's a social group. It's a fun place to be. And actually, you know what? If I'm not a great player, it doesn't matter. I'm there for the enjoyment. And it's, you know, it, it, there's these nice people. Uh, and I think it is the way the GAs managed to kind of morph into more of a kind of social situation. And I think, again, it's the same kind of trick as we talked earlier with St. Patrick's Day. Yes, it's something that's avowedly Irish and different. You know, nobody else in the world plays hurling like the Irish. But actually, you know what? Come in and join us. Come in and play. We'll give you a stick and a helmet and tell you what this game's about and we'll have a fine afterwards and it'll be fun. And suddenly everybody's sucked up and part of that. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's just an appealing kind of Irishness that is open. So, Mike Cronin, we had a few hiccups when trying to organize this conversation, but I tell you what, I am very glad that we found the time to meet up and talk because it was very, very interesting and I really appreciate your insight. Thanks for joining us in the Irish Baseball Podcast. Thanks, Rick. That was Mike Cronin, Academic Director for Boston College, Ireland. To hear more from Mike, check out episode 31 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. He's very knowledgeable on the subject of St. Patrick's Day as it is celebrated in different parts of the world. As for future episodes of the Irish Baseball Podcast, episodes 36 and 37 will feature my conversation with former Notre Dame baseball superstar and former Oakland Athletics prospect Steve Stanley. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the Fighting Irish team led by Stanley, who made it to the College World Series in Omaha, Nebraska. It's also the 20th anniversary of the 2002 Oakland A's season that has been memorialized in the book Moneyball. In the book, author Michael Lewis discusses why the organization decided to select Stanley much earlier than his projections. Until then, thank you for listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org and connect with us on social media. And remember, there's no place like home.